Welcome to the Ideas on Stage podcast, your regular insight into leadership communication. Dr. Maronia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for accepting my invite. I would like to start with just a curiosity for me because I, the reason why I discovered you and your work online is because some time ago I read a book which I really liked by Joe Navarro, What Everybody is Saying. And for our listeners, great book. It's not what everybody's like, what great title, What Everybody is saying and it's a book on nonverbal communication body language joe navarro used to be uh, correct me if i'm wrong a, a an fbi uh, agent and through him i got to know you online so just out of curiosity what's your connection with joe navarro um so i get asked this quite a lot because i think we have an unusual friendship um, but Joe is a great friend. Um, he's been a mentor for years. He's a colleague. We do research projects together. We're writing a book together. Um, I always say I've um, successfully ruined his retirement. Um, but Joe and I first started working together. I think I was 18 and I just started university. And like everybody else, I'd read his books. I was a huge fan. Um, and now Joe is really unique in his willingness to just help. Um, if he sees someone with passion and excitement for the field, he's so good to support them. And if they reach out to him, most people don't respond, but he always does. Um, and I was working on a research project with a lecturer at the time. And we reached out to Joe and Joe was really keen on the work that we were doing and got involved in the project. And then we actually published the paper with Joe. Um, and then after that, I think I was too shy to meet him. I was way too nervous. But then years later, when I started lecturing um, and I was coming to the end of my PhD and I just got my first position as an academic lecturer, I had started my own research group. So I reached out to Joe to kind of say, hey, remember this project we did together? You know, would you be willing to work on more projects? And then it kind of turned into a, a friendship where we would just talk about nonverbals all the time. You know, we would end up Skyping every day to talk about the project, to talk about the papers, to talk about research. And then, you know, the more it went on, the more we both just got excited about learning new things together. Um, and we recommend each other books and papers. And, you know, it's, he's a fantastic friend to have. And I owe so much to him because he challenges me. Um, he challenges me every day and he's taught me so much about stepping out of academia and coming into the presentation side of things and coming into actually being a practitioner um, of nonverbal communication. And on that point, because this is such an important point, so you have, if we think about your journey and feel free to, to share anything else if you'd like from, from your, if we think about your journey from that perspective, on the one hand, you've got the the academic side of things and then you also as you said you also need to put into practice so i'd love to hear your thoughts if we think about these uh, combination of 
the 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 learning the experience and the the academic side of things and then from a non-verbal communication perspective body language for example when we speak in public when we communicate when we give a presentation we need to put into practice so what's your experience from that from that perspective so like I said I came from academia um, and I, I mean, I love the research. I will spend all of my time writing research, doing research, reading books, reading papers. Um, and I, I learned a lot about nonverbals from Joe and then from my own research. So when I started becoming a practitioner, I thought, okay, well, you know, I, I know a lot about nonverbals now. I can step into this and I can apply it because, you know, I, I know the material. So I, started doing presentations and I started giving speeches um, and it hit me very quickly that knowing the information isn't the same as being able to apply the information and, you know you start reading then when you start speaking you think to yourself I don't actually know how to do this because while you're talking it's not natural to be thinking about what behaviors to show so while I was presenting I was thinking I've got to put my hands out I've got to make sure I'm showing open palm gestures got to make sure I'm smiling And doing that, trying to apply the information whilst you're presenting and whilst you're in conversations, it's very cognitively costly. Um, And what I mean by that is you're thinking about so many things at once that nothing is getting your attention. And it took me a long time to realize that, you know, the goal isn't to assess your own nonverbals while you're in an interaction or while you're presenting. It's to make your knowledge of nonverbals part of your natural behavioral repertoire you want it to become automatic you want to just think about you know the information you're presenting you don't want to think about your body at the same time as that and I always compare it to a game of tennis so there's written rules and we can spend as long as we want reading the rules of tennis but it doesn't mean that when we go out onto the pitch that we're going to be a master tennis player you've got to practice 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 And it's the exact same with nonverbals. And you shouldn't be practicing whilst you're presenting. You shouldn't be practicing whilst you're in meetings and important interviews. You should be practicing, and this is going to sound, you know, uncomfortable, but practicing in the mirror, practicing recording yourself and watching it back. What did I do well? What didn't I do? Practicing with friends and family and saying, you know, how did I come across? How did you feel? Did I look natural? And just keep doing that, make notes of things you're struggling with, things you're finding really comfortable, uncomfortable. And then it will start to become second nature. Like, again, um, consider it as, you know, when you're riding a bike, you don't think about what are my legs doing the whole time you're cycling, you just cycle. And that's what you want nonverbal communication to be. You want it to just be part of your natural behavioral repertoire. Um, And it, it took me a long time to learn that. And I'm sure you will be sharing lots of other insights today. But for our listeners, yes, this is so what you've just shared is so important for anybody who wants to become if if I think about my audience, business leaders who are interested in communication, public speaking, presentation skills, for anybody who wants to become a more confident presenter, what you've just said is perhaps the 
the number one thing we need to keep in mind because as you said when we want to learn how to play a new sport the same is true with in many other contexts if we want to learn how to play a new musical instrument we we need knowledge of course and technique as well and when we've got this combination knowledge and technique what really makes a difference is practice so i agree with you 100 and also you shared something which caught my attention because you said that sometimes not sometimes often you you don't want to you don't want to think about what you're doing with your body in yeah. in the real presentation and i i see this as a key challenge and and correct me if i'm wrong from a scientific perspective but what i see also with my own experience is that the vast majority of the non verbal cues that we display are driven by our subconscious mind So it's not something that we often consciously think about it. Yeah. And that's also what, what, what creates a big challenge. What, yes. what do you think? Yeah, and, and you make a really good point. You know, we express nonverbals because it's ingrained in us. You know, most of our nonverbal behaviors are hardwired, meaning that they've evolved with us. And we, you know, when we're stressed, most of us rub our faces. You know, we touch our faces and that is an innate behavior. Fetuses do that in the womb when the mother's stressed out. You know, they haven't learned that behavior. They just do it because, because we've evolved to do so. So it's very difficult to control those natural tendencies. And I think this is where a lot of the misunderstandings about nonverbals come from. Because we put so much focus on them. And I agree, we should absolutely put focus on them. But we shouldn't put the pressure during the presentation. Because when we know, okay, nonverbals, 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 during the presentation, we're gonna go back to that cognitive overload that I talked about. And the information you're sharing is not going to be as good quality because you're focusing on something else. Now, there's another thing that can impact that and it's because we're not good uh, multitaskers. There's not really such a thing as multitasking, it's just quick task switching. So if we're thinking nonverbal behaviors, facial expressions, hand gestures, the other things aren't going to get the attention that they need. We want to remove the nonverbals from our attention and just think about the information, which is why it's so important that those behaviors become automatic. But that's another reason why it's not just about the knowledge. You know, it's so much more important than just the knowledge because everybody is different. You know, what might be comfortable for one person isn't necessarily comfortable for another person. So it's important to understand the repertoire of what's out there you know what behaviors create perceptions of trust increased likability increased cooperation increased general positive person perception but as you practice those you're going to figure out you know this doesn't feel natural for me but this does feel natural and if it doesn't feel natural trying to make that part of your behavior repertoire can be very difficult because it's never going to feel quite like you and everybody has their own unique style So that's another thing we have to add in that it's authenticity. If we are trying to follow a script of show this behavior, show this behavior, it's going to be very unauthentic. Um, so again, it goes back to that practicing. And I wanted to ask you a question around authenticity, but because I wanted to hear what you thought about it, but yeah. you've, you've answered it already, which is great. And also 
uh, Dr. Maronio, because you are a, in the, you are a scientist, and and anytime I have the opportunity to have a conversation with a scientist, I'm super excited about it. I love science. Like some time ago on this podcast, we had Dr. John Medina, who is the author of Brain Rules, another yeah. scientist, which is which is great. Uh, and so you've already shared some insights that come from your research from from science is there anything else and i know that this can be a very broad question but if you were to summarize if you want what science tells us about non-verbal communication i know that it tells us many things but what, what comes to mind anything else in addition to what you've already shared well i mean that is a huge question um, as you're saying that, I'm thinking of just, you know, the multitude of answers that I could give, both my own research and the existing research. Um, I think one thing that it tells us in general is that it's powerful, that we shouldn't underestimate it, but also not overestimate it. Like I said, putting that pressure on it. And also there's a lot of myths out there about this 97% of your communication is nonverbal. And that just isn't true. You know, I love to see people paying attention to the fact that nonverbals are so important, but there is no such thing as a percentage that is overarching for every communication and every interaction, because some interactions are going to be, you know, 90% verbal, some 90% nonverbal, some bits in between. Um, I think it, what we can take from the research is that there is just a plethora of research out there which means that there's a plethora of different techniques and different approaches and different expressions it's impossible to learn everything and apply everything the fact that it's so huge the database of understanding shows we've got to dive into it and then we've got to find again what's natural to us we can recognize that okay well this is scientific and this will be very effective but this doesn't fit with me. Um, and another thing is there's a lot of contradictory research out there. Um, and I fell trapped at starting academia and, think, and thinking that just because something's published, it means that it's sound research. You know, if everything that was published was correct, we wouldn't have multiple studies on the same thing. And science is constantly updating. We think we know something, we develop better methods and we learn something new. So we have to use our initiative to we have to dive into the field. We have to find what's comfortable for us. And we have to really understand the research. You know, don't just read the abstract and take that, because, again, that's where a lot of misunderstandings come from. We have to use our initiative to what seems realistic, what's supported by multiple studies and what feels comfortable for us. And I would like to unpack what you've just said in in a couple of follow up questions because because first of all you 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 said that well what science tells us first of all is that nonverbal communication is powerful. Yes. So I would say let's start with these very simple, if you want, follow up question. But it's important for our listeners. Why is it powerful? If you think about Yep. The context, the particular context of speaking in public, giving a presentation, a talk, or in general, communicating our ideas, why should we care about our nonverbal communication and body language in general? 
So I, I said before that, you know, nonverbals is our, it was our first language. Before we had speech, we had nonverbal communication. And we know this because we can see the evolution of the throat bone um, that allows us to create speech. And obviously we were a social species much before then. So it's ingrained in us to be in tune with other people's nonverbals as well as to express our emotions through nonverbals. So if we think about that, that it was useful to us before language, it makes sense why we are so in tune to nonverbals. And what the research has shown is that we create person perception. So we form an idea about who a person is, what their personality is like, how trustworthy they are, also how likely we are to cooperate with them. And all of these things are really, really important, particularly for public speaking. Because if you don't trust an individual, you don't trust the information that they're sharing. Um, and all of these judgments are made before the person has spoken, before a single interaction has taken place, before a word is spoken, we have an impression of what that person might be. Now, that's important for a, a number of reasons. One, because the impression that we make initially sticks with us. And how we feel about someone and the impression we have about them changes how we then subsequently interact with them. But also those judgments are very resistant to change. So when we form an opinion, say, okay, well, this person's trustworthy or untrustworthy, any information that comes to us after that is actually not accepted the way that it should be because our judgments are very resistant. And again, research has found that the judgment that we make even when we're given information that's contradictory to that impression, we are reluctant to change our impression simply based on that nonverbal assessment of them. And the other angle I wanted to touch, you mentioned myths. There are many myths around yes. nonverbal communication. You also talked yeah. about verbals versus nonverbals. Could you tell us, anything because i've got for example one thing in mind that i hear all the time but i'd love to hear from your perspective based on your experience any any examples or any practical myths that, that you've seen over the years when it comes to nonverbal communication things that most people take for granted but then in reality we know that that's not true yeah um again there's a huge selection that I'm mentally choosing from because I get asked this question a lot and I, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with this question because I love the myth busting but I hate that the myths are so resistant um firstly that you can detect deception with nonverbal communication you can't there is no research out there that supports that assumption none there does not exist a single behavior that is indicative of deception. And this myth is really destructive for negotiations, um, for political um, interactions, because you're trying to see if the person's lying to you. Um, and really um, also, you know, interpersonal relationships, because if you're trying to ask your partner questions and you're judging, okay, well, I can tell by their face, they're lying to me it's going to create resistance in that person. As soon as we're saying, as soon as someone says you're lying, it creates resistance and it creates stress and it can have a really negative impact on that interaction. Um, and this is something I come across so often 
Um, and people either think that you can do everything with nonverbal communication, you can read people's minds, which obviously is not the case, or that nonverbal communication is pseudoscience and that it has absolutely no use. Um, and it's all just a myth. And again, that is absolutely not the case. But because there's so many myths out there muddying the waters, it is very difficult for people to know what to believe and what not to believe. Um, and what's more worrying is most of those myths come from people who claim to be experts, um, colleagues and people that I know who are communication coaches often come to me with questions about these myths because they think that they're true. And that's really worrying to me because they are teaching this information without knowing the information. I'm so glad that, that you say that because, for example, a, a big misunderstanding that in our space uh, among public speaking coaches I hear all the time is, and it comes from, and it's not his fault. He he did, I think, everything he could to demystify uh, that misunderstanding. But I see so many communication coaches still going back to that particular misunderstanding, which, which comes from doctor, and maybe you are familiar with it uh, already, or maybe not. Uh, I don't know. Dr. Albert Merabian, yes. and, and you were talking about percentages, and there are many people who use that one of his studies to say that during a presentation, what you say only counts for, I don't even remember what the percentage is, it could be just 5% or 7%, whereas your body language counts for whatever it is, maybe 55%, yes. whereas it's a misunderstanding Dr. Merabian is himself tried to demystify and and for our listeners because this could be useful. He studies and and Dr. Moronio, if you are familiar with it, feel free to also correct me or add something. But my understanding is that his studies were focused on the communication of emotions and not information. And what that means is, for example, he was testing what would happen if I say uh, something like, um, Oh, Dr. Moronio, uh, this this conversation is so interesting. I'm very, I'm very, I'm very motivated by by this conversation. And of course, in that kind of in that kind of context, my non-verbals there's a mismatch between what I'm saying, the verbals, and the non-verbals. And in that case, the non-verbals are much more powerful. So that's what he was trying to say. But then from that saying that in a presentation what you say only counts for five or seven percent that that's not accurate is there anything else that you'd like to add on this yeah so i mean he was studying liking and disliking and as you said he has refuted the claim so many times um and people again are resistant they want to believe the information because it's easy to digest and easy to apply even if it's incorrect, it's very easy to say, okay, well, that makes sense. I'm going to use that. Um, and the amount of times he's said that this isn't what my study found in the paper, the original research, that isn't what the paper said. Um, as I said, he was studying liking and disliking. And the, the thing about liking and disliking is we have ingrained into us approach and avoid behaviors because, again, going back to our evolutionary history, safety and threat were our, our primary drivers because we lived in a time that was very uncertain 
it wasn't, you know, the technological age that we have now. It's, am I going to be able to eat? Is there going to be a, pred a predator? So everything is safety and threat. And that translates into avoidance and approaches and approach behaviors. It's very, very ingrained into us. It's innate. So those two, they come out very strongly in our nonverbals. And we can show very well whether we are comfortable, uncomfortable, or whether we want to approach and avoid something because they are very innate behaviors. So when we're studying dislike and like, of course, they're going to be very nonverbally driven. Because again, it's a primal instinct to show like and dislike through our nonverbals. When we're public speaking, that's not about safety and threat. That, that isn't going to be something that is primal. It's going to be something that is very information-based. Nonverbals are extremely important for public speaking. And we know that the speaker's nonverbal communication will um, assess competence it will also assess integrity of the information that they're sharing. But if they have great nonverbals, but not great information, the nonverbals are irrelevant because it's really the information that people are going to be able to apply. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for sharing this. And finally, <laughs> and th there's another, and again, this is my understanding, but I'm not going to say what I think. I'm, I'm interested in your, your thoughts based on science, research. To me, there is another myth around, and this is very, it's a very practical example, things like not folding your, your arms because it's a blocking behavior. What do you think? Tell us more. So interestingly, I actually did a study um, on, um, well, I did a study on sequences of behaviors um, but one thing we found was about blocking behaviors. Um, and what we found was we looked at people who were in interviews um, and they were asked really uncomfortable questions and it caused a lot of emotional discomfort compared to people that were just in the interview and it was just a, a typical interview. There was nothing emotionally distressing. And blocking behaviors are an important behavior because we do do them when we feel distressed. You know, again, it's a primal instinct. And typically we will cup our hands and put them over the groin because we protect. And we also do it, we block our, our neck. We also can get objects. And I think about the neck is because again, um, it's a threat. So we are very vulnerable here from predators. So we cover our neck because it's primal. You know, how many times are you stressed and you kind of grab your neck like that? Um, but we can do it. We can, if you have a handbag, often we will put that in front of us or we see it with patients in therapy with a pillow. So that in itself isn't the misunderstanding because blocking behaviors absolutely do occur when we're in threat. And that can include the arms. It doesn't mean that that is always what the arms are there for, but it can include that. And in the research that I did, I found that in both the emotional distress condition and the neutral condition, blocking behaviors occurred. They occurred in both. And it wasn't anything to do with the emotional distress. It was because it was an uncomfortable situation. Even if the interview was comfortable, public speaking can cause stress and discomfort. Even if you are a very well-versed public speaker, it's not a natural thing for us to do. So it can come out in our behaviors. Even if you are confident and comfortable, you can still show occasionally there's blocking behaviors in an interview, in a presentation, and it has nothing to do with the fact that you are in 
a lot of distress, as I said, in the neutral condition, no distress, the behaviors were there because of the situation, not because of the emotions felt, which is why it's so important when it comes to nonverbals assessing other people, we don't just say he crossed his arms, you know, he's being defensive or he tucked his feet under the chair. He's obviously very shy and being defensive. We have to look at the bigger picture. You know, what I found was it wasn't just about the one behavior. It was about the behavior that came before and the behavior that, became, that came after. If the individual showed loads of open displays, you know, they kept their limbs away from their body and then they showed blocking displays and then open displays it had nothing to do with distress. It was when the individual showed a series of other cues relevant to distress, like a lot of self-touching and making themselves really, really small and closing themselves off. When the blocking display occurred then, it was indicative of distress. But you can kind of see now what I'm alluding to, the fact that it's it's not just a single behavior. No single behavior is indicative of anything, really. You know, in the bigger picture, absolutely. But we have to take everything as a whole. You mentioned something, assessing other people. When you said when we assess other people and then you went through your explanation and you made me think about another um, another thing that we need to consider, which is really important, particularly in our context, public speaking. Because when we think about non-verbals, body language, we often think about it from the perspective of the speaker yeah which is super important but when we when we give a presentation we are communicating with someone and so we've got an audience uh, and so how do if you've got any tips or a- any thoughts in, in general how do we go about understanding whether or not for example the audience is interested in what we are saying or whether or not they are listening to us through their non-verbals so when we go back to like and dislike it's the same for both you know presenter and audience the negative behaviors of closing oneself off and being uncomfortable translates into both speaking and listening If you see a crowd of people who look very disengaged, you know, they are very slumped because when we're uninterested, we slump. When we are interested, the natural tendency, we go back to that approach avoid, is to lean forward. I catch myself doing it. I've recently started a podcast and I get so excited about what I'm sharing that I end up with my face, you know, right against the screen. And I have to keep reminding myself to go back. That's ingrained in us. If you see lots of people kind of slump back in their chairs and slouch, you know, maybe tilting away, it's a sign to you there's not engagement there. You're likely to see, you know, one or two people disengaged because even the most engaging presentation might not appeal to everybody. So if you see one or two people, you can't just say, you know, it's rubbish and then you lose confidence. You've got to take, again, the bigger picture. But if you see lots of people starting to slouch, turn away, disengaged, you know, maybe looking at the door because we look at the door when we want to leave. Again, it's a natural tendency. We look, you know, that at our watch, we look at the door. Um, there's also, there was also research done that I thought was really, really interesting looking at trust behavior, but not how to create trust, um, how to recognize if a person is about to trust you. 
Um, so they found that there were multiple behaviors and the behaviors were arm crossing, um, face touching, um, leaning backwards and touching the hands a lot. Again, not in isolation. If in a short period of time, most of these behaviors were seen at once, what it alluded to was that person showing the behaviors were less likely to then initiate trust towards you. So if you see that as you're talking and presenting, you see lots of these behaviors. And again, I, I talked about how touching the face when we're stressed is innate. And we see it in fetuses in the womb when the mother is stressed. We also see it in primates because it's a natural behavior. When we're struggling to grasp information or we don't trust a person, it can cause some stress. So, you know, that is a likely behavior to see. Crossing the arms isn't necessarily indicative of um, being uncomfortable or being resistant to someone's information. But within the wider context of other behaviors, it can allude to that. And again, the leaning backwards, slouching, and then also lots of hand touching, again, because self-touch displays are a sign of stress. When those are observed together, what I would suggest, if you see this from lots of people, think about, okay, you know, do I need to reevaluate what I'm saying? And you can pause and say, you know, am I losing you guys? You know, and try and ramp it up because if you see people disengaging, either they're disengaging with you or the information. And you need to kind of consider, do I appear engaging? If you feel you are giving a really engaging presentation, but everybody looks disengaged, then maybe reevaluate what you're saying. You know, and it's okay to ask the audience, you don't have to say, hey, you know, are you enjoying this presentation? But you can get the audience engaged and find out, you know, what their style is. Because uh, I was uh, reading um, this research recently about adapting to your audience. Um, and lots of presenters go in with a, a structured plan. And actually, when people go in with a structured plan, you know, and they say, okay, I need to say this and this and this and this, and this is exactly how I'm going to do it it can be perceived negatively by the audience because it's so planned and it's not fluid. What audiences like is adaptable presentations. Go in with an idea of what you want to say. If you can see disengagement, maybe the audience wants something slightly different. You know, different cultures prefer different types of presentation. Different countries prefer different types of presentation. So everything is about learning and adapting. Um, and that disengagement displays, those disengagement displays are a sign to you that, you know, something isn't being um, as engaging as you would like. You've just mentioned culture. And, yeah. and, and I guess this is an interesting one. If we think about body language, nonverbal communication in general, does, and I don't know really what the answer is, I'm just curious, does culture and cultural differences play a role when it comes to nonverbals? Absolutely. Yes. Um, so our behaviors are largely socialized. So some of our behaviors are ingrained and innate. So we see them across the board, across all cultures. But lots of our other behaviors are not ingrained in us and they are socialized. Take, for example, the nodding of the head. You know, that can mean yes, and shaking the head means no. In some cultures, it's completely the opposite. Um, and I was talking about this behavior the other day with um, Chris Hadnagy, 
Um, and he was telling me a funny story about, you know, he was in a different culture and I, I can't remember where he was. And he was saying to his friend, you know, I, I'm starving. Are you, are you hungry? And the guy um, shook his head and he went, oh, okay. Um, so then a couple of hours later, he said, you know, are you, um, you know, wanting anything to eat? And the guy shook his head again. And he said, it went on three hours because he asked him a couple of times. And at the end, he said, look, I'm so hungry. And he said, well, each time you've asked me, I've said yes. And he said, but you shook your head. And he said, that means yes. Um, and he just said, you know, it was a, a a reminder to him that you have to recognize the cultures that you're going into and try and learn their behavioral repertoire. Because each culture has their own selection of what certain things mean. Like the peace sign, if I flip that around in the UK, that's very offensive. In the US, I think it still means peace. Um, and when people, you know, throw you the bird, we call it, it's very offensive to us. And they don't recognize that, you know, why are you offended by that? Because it doesn't mean the same thing to them. So you can come across really awkward situations like the head nod and the two fingers if you don't make an effort to try and learn those cultural behaviors. Um, and when you are doing a presentation, especially if you're doing it in a different country, if you're doing it in your country and you know kind of the audience are going to be a select group, then, you know, fine. If you are going to someone else's culture and someone else's country, it's important that you make the effort to adapt to them. They're not going to watch you and adapt to your behaviors because they're in their social norm. You have to make sure you are aware of the culture that you are going into so you don't make any accidental nonverbal slip ups. And this reflection around adapting our presentations to the audience is also, in addition to many of the things you mentioned today, but so crucial for us to be able to take our communication skills to 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 a higher level in the end this is what we say at ideas on stage when you give a presentation it's not your presentation it's always the audience's presentation and so we need to make it relevant to the audience from any perspective from a content yeah. perspective from a from a delivery perspective which means non-verbal communication and it also makes me think about one key word in, in communication, which is empathy. In the end, we want to be empathic to, to the audience to, as you said, to adjust it, adapt it to them, make it relevant. Is there anything, if you think about this idea of being empathic when, when communicating, and again, you don't have to add anything else, but I just want to give you the opportunity in case anything else comes to mind that you'd like to share. What's the role of nonverbal communication when it comes to communicating in a way that's empathic with the audience? So one of the biggest drivers of um, judgments of empathy and general person perception is our facial expressions. So our facial expressions of emotion. Um, if we are talking about, you know, I'm really excited to share this with you. And, you know, I'm really excited to share this with you. I've got all of the body language of someone who's excited, but my face is just saying, I couldn't care less. People will recognize that. Um, if we are talking about this story that was really tough for us, but we think, you know, I, I'm 
presenting, I need to keep a smile, but we're talking about a difficult situation. The facial expression of emotion is inconsistent with the information you're portraying. Having strong expressions of emotion that are consistent with the information is really important for empathy perception, as well as trustworthiness, likability, familiarity, friendliness. So I would say probably, I mean, there's a huge amount of behaviors that are associated with empathy, but facial expressions of emotion being consistent with the information is really important. And in addition to facial expressions, you talked about trust and and empathy. Is there anything else from a practical perspective? Do you have any any practical tips for, you also used a key word earlier, which is confidence. Uh, And most, what what I find is that most people who listen to to this podcast, they want to become more confident communicators, more confident presenters. So do you have any practical tips or do's and don'ts from a non-verbal communication perspective for us to be able to to appear but also feel more confident yeah so i i call it fake it till you make it i think we've all heard that saying um it really is true so basically our facial nerve is connected to our pons in our brain stem so when we show an emotion it signals to our brain that we feel that emotion so if we aren't displaying excitement and joy and confidence with our face and it's hard to show confidence with your face but you know smiling being positive then we're going to reduce that effect and when we don't smile when we show negativity on our face it sends a signal to our brain that we feel more negative but also the way we speak to ourselves. again researchers show when we say you know I can do this I'm confident I can do it we are actually more likely to feel that we did a good job And when we say, I can't do it, I'm so nervous, it increases cortisol, which one blocks our access to our information um, as well as it causes stress. So it causes negative behaviors. So when you go in, think, you know, what I say to myself matters. And also my expressions are going to affect my ability to be confident Um, and open displays. I mean, there was a lot of controversy around this posture um the power pose and also i guess yeah Yeah, so research has found that you know there is absolutely no biological effect of this power pose it doesn't change your hormone levels but what it does do is change your psychological feeling of power and of confidence and isn't that what it's about really you know feeling more confident and our body language does massively contribute to how confident we feel If we bring ourselves really small and tell ourselves I'm really nervous, you are going to make yourself more nervous. You're going to create more cortisol in your brain and you're going to give, it's called emotional contagion. So our expressions of emotion and our body language, they kind of leak onto other people, you know, which is why when you're interacting with someone that's really nervous, it can make you nervous because we have this kind of emotional contagion. So think, you know, I want to be more positive. So I'm just going to fake it till I make it. You know, I'm going to be more open. I'm going to use my knowledge and I'm going to use what comes natural to me. And I'm just going to go for it. And when we do that, it, it shows. And nobody steps out fully confident. You know, public speaking is difficult. And it's actually one of the biggest fears 
when you ask people what they're scared of, they tend to say public speaking before death which, you know, obviously people are scared of death more than public speaking, but it, it shows that it's relevant to people and it's really easily accessible in their mind of, yeah, I'm terrified of public speaking. So it's natural to be a bit nervous. When you tell yourself you can do it and you use those open displays and use your knowledge and show excitement with your face, you're going to do a better job than if you don't show those expressions. Yeah. And when you said fake it till you make it, you immediately made me think of the work of Emi Kade, Power Postures. And she also has a great TED talk on, yes. on that subject, which is which I also recommend just in general from a communication perspective. And I have heard of the controversy around uh, power postures. Is it true? Is it not true? So it was good to to hear your perspective on things yeah okay and this is a question that i like to ask all of my guests uh, and it's for me it's not for the audience i love books uh, and so mm. if you think about and it doesn't have to be a book it could be something else it could be an article it could be a piece of research it could be a podcast if it's a book even better if you think about everything we've talked about today so in general non-verbal communication body language particularly in the context of public speaking, if possible, is that beyond the one I mentioned earlier, what everybody is saying, which I recommend by Joe Navarro. And if you've got your own resources, Dr. Maronio, feel free to, to share them with our guests, uh, with our listeners. But even beyond your own resources, any, any particular books which you would recommend? Yep. So, I mean, obviously I was going to say what everybody is saying, uh, anything by Joe is just fantastic. He's got a fantastic book called Louder Than Words, which I highly recommend. It is great. Um, and that's from a, an applied perspective. His writing is really accessible and digestible. If you, like me, love the sciencey stuff and the stuff that most people say, oh, I don't want to read a textbook. I love I love the textbooks. Um, anything by Michael Argyle, and especially there's a book called Bodily Communication. It's an old book. So do bear in mind that research has updated. Um, but for foundational knowledge, and there's still so much useful information in there, I would recommend Bodily Communication by Michael Argyle. And of course, Desmond Morris's books, Man Watching, um, The Naked Ape are all fantastic books that speak to the importance of human behavior and nonverbal communication great thank you very much and if anybody wants to connect with you after this conversation what should they do where, where do they find you so i have my website which is just abbymorono.com and um, my linkedin i think is dr abby morono and then my twitter i think is abby j morono okay so website linkedin and twitter Okay. And what's the most important thing? And this is perhaps my, my last question. If you think about, again, everything we talked about, what's the one thing you would like our listeners to, to remember from, from this conversation? Oh, I think to remind yourself that nonverbal communication isn't a tool that you can pick up and put down. Because when we do that, it's very... Um, not natural. So nonverbal communication is not a tool that you can pick up and put down. 
it's something that you need to make natural to you. It's going to take a long time and it's going to be frustrating, like learning any skill. But the more you do it, the more you practice and apply, the more natural it will be to you and the more comfortable you will be. So we go back to the initial idea of the importance of practice for us to be able to to yes. apply this knowledge in in an effective way and before we close is there anything else any final words or messages final thoughts uh, maybe a question that you would have liked me to ask and i haven't done it anything anything at all you like to you like to share with our listeners anything else um i think it's important for listeners to realize the the utility of both the academic side of things as well as reading the books which would be considered more pop science more digestible you know I always say don't get your information from pop science and from blogs you know use that to gauge interest and then check in the literature and I think that's important you know finding the balance between the digestible and interesting research and then or interesting presentations of the research and then the empirical literature and try and get this well-versed um, plethora of uh, knowledge. Which I guess you tell us, but I guess most people don't do, right? Yes, it is. <laughs> when I say to people, so where did you get that information? It's always a blog and um, it's always this book. It's never a textbook and it's never the literature because it's not fun to read. And what I'm going to say is probably not going to make me very popular. But people say, well, you can't expect people to read the literature. Well, if you don't want to do it, then that's fine. But you won't get the same results. If you take secondhand information, you're always going to have secondhand knowledge. You are never going to get that firsthand, real, true understanding because you're getting it from someone else's perspective. You know, blogs are written to be engaging. I have read so many blogs that just miscommunicate the science and over-exaggerate the findings and people take that information. It's not always fun to read the literature, but if you want to be an expert in something, if you really want to do it well, you've got to make the hard decisions and you've got to read the empirical literature. Now that you're saying this, I don't know if you're interested, but maybe in the future, there might be an opportunity to do part two of this conversation where we talk about that because it has a lot of implications from a communication perspective as well so if you're interested Absolutely. we could think about it in the future and for now dr Moronio, thank you so much for taking the time i appreciate it for sharing your knowledge your insights your research your science and all the very best let's keep in touch thank you so much for having me if you enjoyed this episode of the Ideas on Stage podcast, there are many more you might like. So please subscribe, leave us a review and tell us what you think. You can find many more ideas on business communication at ideasonstage.com or by searching for Ideas on Stage on iTunes, YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now.